Tonight on Tisky Sour, we're talking about Boris Johnson's desperate housing plans. Wes Streeting's transparent pitch to the left and Paul Mason going off the deep end. To discuss these hot topics, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. What an interesting week we've had. Very happy we can talk about it here and review on a Friday night. Fresh from his near-death experience in the House of Commons earlier in the week, Boris Johnson has given a speech in Blackpool where he announced a package of shiny new housing policies. For four decades, it has been possible for council home tenants to use a discount to buy the property they live in. Over that time, almost two million people have been helped into home ownership. They've switched identities and psychology from being dependent on the state for every repair, from damp proofing to a new front door, to being in charge of their own family home, able to make improvements and add value as they please. For various reasons, the number of tenants who actually use this freedom has been steadily diminishing. So now is the moment to widen the possibilities and to give greater freedoms to those who yearn to buy. I want us to deliver on the long-standing commitment made by several governments to extend the right to buy to housing associations. There are still 1.6 million people, 1.6 million households living in council homes, but there are now 2.5 million households whose homes belong to housing associations. And they're trapped. They can't buy. They don't have the security of ownership. They can't treat uh, their home as their own or make the improvements that they want. And while some housing associations are excellent, others have been known to treat their tenants with scandalous indifference. So it's time for change. Over the coming months, we will work with the sector to bring forward a new right to buy scheme. It will work for tenants, giving millions more the chance to own their own home. It will work for taxpayers, responsibly capped at a level that is fully paid for, affordable within our existing spending plans, and with one-for-one replacement of each social housing property sold. So, to revive his leadership after a massive rebellion on Monday, Boris Johnson is reviving the spirit of Margaret Thatcher. And he's chosen one of her most damaging policies to mimic. Thatcher's right to buy scheme. It was a scheme which allowed council tenants to buy their homes at knockdown prices, and it was, by value, the biggest privatisation she oversaw. And it has a lot to do with the housing crisis we now find ourselves in. Today, 40% of properties bought under right to buy are owned by private landlords. Affordable rents, which used to go to local authorities, are now extortionate rents going to the wealthy. This chart from Shelter shows us just how disastrous this period was. Local authority homes built per year in the 50s, 60s, and most of the 70s, around 150,000 council homes were built annually. From the 1980s onwards, it fell to virtually zero private homes built every year. That stayed relatively stable, and the overall result is a massive fall in housing supply and a massive increase in prices. Now, any of you who were paying very close attention to Boris Johnson's speech might have noticed there's a difference between his policy and that of Thatcher. She banned local councils from replacing the council homes they sold off. Boris Johnson is demanding that housing associations replace homes when they sell them. But in practice, this is hard to believe. 
To see why, we can look to a pilot scheme the government has been running in the West Midlands. That scheme allowed a small number of housing association tenants the right to buy their home, and the BBC spoke to a representative of one of those associations. We sold 257 properties. We've replaced those with 165. There's still a third missing. The cost to replace are higher than the cost of sale. That's simply a fact. So, housing associations were told to replace homes they were forced to sell, but after selling the homes at a discount, they didn't have the cash to do it. And the reality is even worse than was suggested in that clip. According to The Guardian, the replacement homes that were built were smaller than the ones they replaced, and 60% were so-called affordable homes as opposed to homes for social rent. Now, in case you didn't know, affordable properties require tenants to pay up to 80% of private rent, so not very affordable at all. All this means we're looking at even further housing shortages, and with over a million people already on social housing waiting lists, we can assume that's about to get longer. Or at least that's how it looks to my simple brain. Let's ask Under Secretary for Tech and Digital Economy, Chris Philp, if he can help us with the maths. So, will extending the right to buy to housing associations, something the Prime Minister talked to her about today, provide a further shortage of rented accommodation? No, no, to answer that question, no, it won't, because the number of people remains the same, the number of homes remains the same, it's just changing the tenure type. So, the, the answer to the question is no. So, ha- hang on big... a minute, hang on a minute, because there was. Yeah. Just let me understand that, because there was, the government's done a pilot of this in the Midlands yeah. in 2018, and less than a third of the homes that were sold were replaced as a result of that pilot. So where do people who need but, to then go on the Social Housing Association, how do they But the point is, but the person who exercises that right to buy, by definition, is somebody who was on the Social Housing Register. They then exercise their right to buy, so the number of people on the Social Housing Register goes down by one. Yeah, but what about all the people the on the Social Housing waiting list? Yeah. Where but, are they going to live? But the, but the balance between stock and people stays the same because each goes down by one. You then, separately to that, you but build the people more... on the list obviously can't. Right, so, so, so separately... Am I missing something? Yeah. No, no, you are, you are, you are. Because, because separately to that, obviously, you have to build more homes to meet the inflow, right? So that makes sense. But look, uh, the, the more general... Does it? If you think about it, if you think about it, it does, if you think about it, it does make sense. Thanks for that, Chris. It wasn't particularly reassuring. There is perhaps, though, a reason that even if damaging, this policy will be less consequential than Margaret Thatcher's. That's because, compared to the 1980s, it will be much harder for anyone to buy their rental home. To see why, we just need to look at how the housing market has changed since that first round of right to buy. This is the ratio between wages and house prices since 1983. Through most of the 80s, the ratio was around 3.5 to 4 times the average salary. Today, that ratio is nearer to seven. And in parts of England, it's above 15. Getting a mortgage for a house worth seven or 15 times more than average incomes is going to be hard for anyone. And people in housing association properties tend to be at the lower end of the income spectrum. And indeed, many rely on housing benefits or universal credit. Here, though, again, on this front, Boris Johnson had a plan. So we're going to look to change the rules on welfare so that the 1.5 million working people who are in receipt of housing benefits and want, I stress working people, uh, and who want to buy their first home will be given a new choice to spend their benefit on rent as now or put it towards a first ever mortgage. Doing so removes a significant barrier that currently prevents hundreds of thousands of families from buying their own home. And to remove another, 
we're going to explore discounting lifetime and help to buy ISA savings from universal credit eligibility rules. That doesn't mean letting anyone who claims benefits uh, while sitting a, 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 uh, on a vast pension pot that they could be uh, drawing on. Uh, that, that, that's not the people we're targeting, but making it easier for hardworking people to put away a little every month until they have enough for a deposit on their first home. Now, it does seem weird that you can only use housing benefit to pay rent and not to pay a mortgage, especially as a mortgage can be cheaper than rent. But will many people on housing benefit be able to actually buy a home to get that mortgage? Let's ask Housing Minister Michael Gove. Do you think this is really going to make a difference? I'm going to come back. I'm sorry to keep asking you this question. I'm only asking a question again and again because I haven't got an answer. When you say a significant number of people will be affected by this, give me a range. You might not be able to say, oh, it's, you know, 2027. But is it in the hundreds, in the thousands, in the hundreds of thousands? What is it? How many people do you think there are right now who have to claim housing benefit to pay their rent in their privately rented home, who are in a position, have enough savings that they're able to go and put a deposit on a property and they'd be able to buy a property? Because I don't think we're talking about virtually anyone in this country. Well, there are more than 3 million people at the moment who claim housing benefit Mm -hmm. and significant numbers of them are are also claiming support for their rent through universal credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, But by definition... uh, uh, How many of them are in a position to get a mortgage? Uh, Well, uh, uh, as a result of the changes that we are making, more. Um, How uh, many more? You said a significant number. How many? This is a gov- major government announcement. This is about Julie. keeping Boris Johnson in power. <laughs> this is about this is about appealing to voters, yeah, no, no, I, changing I, I, people's I, I, lives. Julia. You must have a clue. It's your area of responsibility. You're the housing secretary. How many people do you think this policy will be, will affect? Julian, um, uh, I uh, I don't know, and I can't know, don't and know. no, I, I and nobody can know precisely how many people will individually choose to take advantage of a policy. Uh, how many people will be listening to your show tomorrow? Tell me precisely. <laughs> I'm not in charge of running the country, deciding what people can and can't do. I'm no, I know, respect. but you're in charge of I'm just a question. jobbing hack. The point I'm making, the point I'm making I think gently, uh, uh, is that... Uh, <laughs> you don't know. You've introduced you're, you're, you're a policy and you don't know who you're, it's going no, to no, affect. Julian, you're a formidable interrogator um, um, and, and you're badgering me. I'm a asking a basic question. A, in order to come up with a figure... But by definition, uh, that figure could only be a guesstimate. Um, Give us a and, guesstimate. Uh, uh, well, well, the, <laughs> it would do, do you think this is an unreasonable question? There's a government Julie. policy. How many people will it affect? It's a reasonable question. It's not badgering. No, it's not. It's a silly question, Julia. Um, it's, it's a is, silly question. Uh, yes, it is. How many um, people um, will a government policy affect? It's a silly question. It's definitely not a silly question. Obviously, these numbers will come with uncertainties. We could accept that. We don't expect these you know, predictions to be right on. But if you're announcing a set-piece policy, you have to be able to give us a range of the number of people who this is going to affect. Otherwise, why are you announcing it? It's very, very bizarre. And the Minister for Work and Pensions, Therese Coffey, didn't know much more. Here she is on LBC being asked about the just-announced policy. Well, let's get into the details of this scheme to help people on benefits get a mortgage. Are lenders on board with that? Well, we're confident that lenders will be in terms of uh, not only is this a choice then for their tenants uh, to get onto that housing ladder, but also as part of this, um, what we're announcing today is making it easier for people to build up a, a deposit. Uh, and uh, that's going to be an important part of giving uh, certainty 
uh, to lenders that people are responsible with their finances. So lenders not on board at the moment are housing associations on board. Well, in terms of uh, discussions are ongoing, of course, there's already existing rights to acquire and certain rights to buy already. Uh, so this is just making sure that we're delivering on what uh, successive governments have said that we would do. Um, this uh, Under the leadership of uh, Boris Johnson, we're getting on and doing it. Making sure you're delivering, but as we've established, housing associations aren't on board yet and uh, lenders aren't on board yet. Oh. So like Michael Gove, Therese Coffey doesn't seem to have done her homework. And to be honest, that kind of makes sense. These policies were only being announced this Thursday to distract from Boris Johnson almost losing a confidence vote on Monday. No wonder they didn't have time to do any of the maths or do any consultations. Aaron, I want your thoughts on the Tories' big or not so big housing announcements. I mean, it's not even pissing in the wind, because at least when you piss in the wind, you're producing something, something's happening. I mean, like you say, this is just sort of media. This is just media froth. It's just media froth. And, and the right and the Tories and legacy media love to talk about the housing crisis. It's a supply issue. We need more supply. You know, the right wingers, the low tax people love to do this. It's a supply, supply side problem. It's a demand side problem, too. The average property in the UK, I think, is about £277,000 as of this year. Now, if you want to get a 10% deposit, that means you're going to need £27,000. Actually, increasingly, we're looking at 15% deposits, so you're looking at about £40,000. But in surveying costs, legal fees, moving, yada, 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 you're looking at about £45,000 to just get on the property ladder. Now, very few people have that lying around. It's, it's less the issue around the wages, although, of course, that's an issue as well. But the deposit for many people, particularly those outside London, is, is the major inhibiting factor. In London, of course, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, it's absolutely implausible for somebody on, a, on, a, on an average income to buy somewhere in London, even if it's just very sort of humble, one-bedroom flat. So there's a problem on the demand side. Wages are too low. There is a problem on the supply side, but the idea that it's going to be remediated through helping people on benefits this, to me, just stinks culturally of the 1990s. We don't want you to be dependent on the state. They're not dependent on the state. The people who are really being hammered by the rental market in this country work. They have jobs. They have kids. They're trying to get by. You know, they, they're starting businesses, some of them. Some of them are very successful people, but they can't afford to get on the property ladder, like I say, particularly in bigger cities. This is most conspicuous. So they're the people you need to be talking about. You know, Michael... The number of people between their mid-30s and mid-40s renting in the UK has tripled since 2000. So uh, in 2000, I think it was about 10% of people in that age bracket, mid-30s to mid-40s, one in 10 people in 2000 was renting. Today, that figure is three in 10. It's 30%, 30% right? So obviously, there's a major increase in middle-aged people, not, not students, not kids, though they're, they're being smashed by housing and the rental crisis too, middle-aged people are increasingly struggling to get on, on the housing ladder. And they're talking about being dependent on the state and benefits. And it's like a, it's like a smorgasbord of Tory talking points, you know, welfare, dependency, housing. It's not a policy. It's an anti-policy. You know, it's something that you talk about to Judy Hartley Brewer on talk TV or whatever the hell she does. Amongst a deeply set of unserious policy proposals from deeply unserious people in government, this is probably the most ridiculous, simply because the problem itself of the housing crisis is so extraordinarily overwhelming. 
is it supply or is it demand? It often comes up. And I mean, I think clearly it is, it is both. If there were more houses, if more houses were being built, prices would, I mean, maybe go down a bit, but probably not that much considering how much they are used as sort of like a speculative asset. But the issue I think is even if they, even if we do build more houses and even if that stabilizes the prices a little bit, if you've got levels of inequality that we've got right now, those new houses are not going to get bought up by people who want to make them a home, but they're going to get bought up by the people who want to be a landlord. Because if the landlords have all the money and the renters don't have any money, then if you build a new house, the renter still isn't going to be able to afford it, right? So it's, it's, it's a supply problem. It's also an inequality problem. And I suppose what really frustrated me about these, these announcements, and as I say, I think if, if they were to be successful, they'd probably be quite damaging. It seems like they're actually going to have basically zero effect because there aren't many people who can afford to take advantage of this policy anyway. Of course, also, if you got offered a council house discount and you bought your property, good for you. Like no resentment from from me in any in any shape or form. But if that is used to sell off stock, and in this situation, it does seem like it will be, despite what Boris Johnson says, because as we've heard, well, in the pilot, the whole point of a pilot is to see how these things will work. They did the pilot; it didn't work. They built a third less houses than they sold off, and I think it is really really important that they weren't even for social rent. They were affordable, eighty percent of private rents. And if you look at how high private rents are at the moment, that's not affordable. So I find it very, very frustrating. Your point about dependence on the state as well, Aaron, I think is really interesting in this sort of scenario, because it's, I think, the most obvious situation where the option other than dependence on the state, unless you have shed loads of cash, is dependence on someone much worse than the state. So I'm at the moment dependent on a private landlord, happens to be an ex-council home, now, what I would give to be dependent on the state instead of being dependent on that private landlord, because I would have some leverage over, well, the state or, or the local council, whoever was, was renting it out. And I think it would be much more affordable than it is now. So the opposite of independence, the absolute opposite is being dependent on a private landlord. You have no leverage over them whatsoever, given you know, how flimsy our, our, our rental laws are in this country. And you're just so dependent on them and they, they don't have to show any responsibility whatsoever. So I just, I find it incredibly frustrating. It's obvious what we need is we need millions more council homes. Like obviously, yeah, I'm sure there are many people, many families who do really want to own their home. Good for them. Personally, even if I could afford to, I don't really want to at the moment. You know, I quite like living with other people. I don't know where I'm going to be in the long term. I don't know how big my household will be in the long term. So it, I do find it very frustrating when the only option the government give you other than this sort of debt servitude to, to a private landlord who hasn't done anything for their income, is to buy a property, well, which, regardless of these policies, we can't afford. Aaron, any sort of final thoughts on this, on this topic? I mean, you just put that so lucidly, Michael. And I think it feeds back to the point I was referring to earlier, the kind of boomer ideology. Oh, big brother, the state, it's bad, state dependency. And of course, what is freedom? What is liberty? Liberty, for centuries, has been the idea that you aren't subject to arbitrary power. And like you say, for our generation, the idea of arbitrary power coming from the state, I mean, yeah, of course, policing, stop and search and whatnot. In our everyday lives, for tens of millions of people, it's the private market. And the, the worst, most clear manifestation of that is with the rental sector. Now, back in the day, in the 70s, if, if you were living somewhere and you wanted housing policy to change in your local area, you could vote for another councillor, right? Like you said, that's the leverage. You know, I can get rid of this person. But for some reason, these 55, 65-year-olds who vote Tory, not all people that age, by the way, are Tories. I'm not saying that. But those are the people who drive this ideology and say the 70s, we're never going back. Hello? 
Inflation is 9%. We've got 0% growth. We've got flatlining wages for 15 years. It's worse than the 70s. If only it was the 70s. But for some reason, those people who, of course, by virtue of their age and their resources, are at the center of our political and media culture. Those people, for some reason, think, oh, that was so terrible. It was so terrible you could have a councillor and vote them out if they were not doing things that were in your rational interest. That was so terrible. So much better to have the private market where a landlord can be completely unscrupulous and do what they like, and you've got virtually no capacity to push back. Isn't that so much better? That's freedom. Don't like it? Move elsewhere. I mean, my goodness, you're talking about a profound detachment from reality, which, by the way, is getting worse and worse year on year. You know, first-time buyers, that's, that's edging, it's now 32. It's edging up year on year. Of course, most, a lot of people increasingly can't buy. And, and even then, that's before interest rates rise and so on and so forth. And so even homeowners might start saying, the status quo isn't that functional, is it? Many, many people are being let down by how we do regulate and coordinate housing in this country. A very small number of people do very well out of it, i.e. landlords. And for some reason, they think that them doing well reflects the broader public interest. I keep seeing on Twitter today, I think Kirsty Allsop got involved, sort of saying, well, if we weren't private landlords, where would people live? Like, the house is still going to be there. Like, I would, I would, if my landlord just disappeared in a puff of smoke, all it would do for my life would be to dramatically improve it, I'll tell you. I, I do not need that guy. I need the house I'm currently living in, but I do not need the guy who I pay all that rent to every month. He's not serving any purpose whatsoever. Just one thing I'll add is sort of, I suppose because it's now a priority of Tory backbenchers, something that the media and the Conservatives and the, even Labour are talking about all the time at the moment is, is taxes and taxes being high, the highest tax burden we've had since, you know, whenever, yada, yada, yada. And how I respond to all of that is essentially like taxes. I don't think I pay that much of them. Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem that sort of, grotesque the amount of income it takes from me at the end of a day. I'm on, you know, not a particularly high wage. Rent does, right? So I, I do not really notice this tax burden they keep talking about. But the burden of paying my landlord, I think about basically every day, right? And also my tax burden, I get hospitals. My tax burden, I got my education. The tax burden, I get, you know, public transport or whatever. The hundreds of pounds I give to my landlord every month, what do I get for it? Nothing. I mean, I live in a house. Frank, that, that's why I do it because I need to live somewhere. But he hasn't. He didn't build it. He barely maintains it. That's, I find it incredibly frustrating. Now we've got lots more coming up on the show tonight. But obviously, all of that is, you know, what I'm going to say, only possible due to our kind supporters. If you are already a regular monthly supporter, thank you so much. If not please do go to navaramedia.com. Almost eating my words now. Navaramedia.com/support. Our regular viewers will know that we're currently running a fundraiser where we're really, really trying to get our regular supporters up to 10,000. And I think at the moment we're on about 8,500 and we started the fundraiser on 6,000. So we're almost there, but we're really, really keen to get up to that number. So if you aren't already, please do become a regular supporter, whatever you can afford, £1, £3, £5, or our traditional ask for an hour's wage a month. But whatever you can afford, please do go to nebrowmedia.com forward slash support. Let's go straight to our next story. For a while now, Paul Mason has been lashing out at any left-winger he doesn't deem to be supportive enough of NATO. But emails leaked to the grey zone show just how far that obsession seems to have gone. The leaked emails are mainly an exchange between Paul Mason and someone called Emil Khan, who is the founder of a self-described counter-disinformation organisation. 
The principal focus of the emails is marginalizing the gray zone. Mason and Khan see the website as, as pushing out Kremlin-backed conspiracy theories. And of course, the gray zone, understandably, aren't very happy about that fact. Now, we should be clear, discussing how to expose journalism you think is dishonest or flawed is perfectly reasonable. And the Grey Zone's reporting is controversial. In March this year, their founder asked, was bombing of Mariupol theatre staged by Ukrainian Azov extremists to trigger NATO intervention? And the Grey Zone's reporting on the Syrian civil war took a similar tone. They often suggested that atrocities, which most experts blamed on Syrian President Assad, were in fact false flags committed by groups resisting the regime. So if you want to ask questions about their journalism, feel free. Whatever you think of that website, though, Paul Mason's apparent plotting should be of wider concern. Just take a look at this email. Mason says to Khan, I'm keen to help re-Grayzone. If you have any access to resources and expertise, here is what I suggest. A dynamic map of the left pro-Putin infosphere I made one of the British left Putin influencers that I can share with you, but a more useful project would be to get pro-traffic analysts to map how the different echo chambers interact, where the material begins, and work out who might be pulling the strings. We're talking about this dynamic pro-Putin map. And then he says, I asked two people on the official side who are concerned about this. Does the state monitor and counter left disinfo? And they said no. So Mason has made a dynamic map of what he calls the quote, left pro-Putin infosphere, and it's an issue he's talking to people on the, quote, official side about. Now, I assume by official side, he means government officials or people in intelligence agencies. Now, with that in mind, let's look at that dynamic map. On the left, you have in big capital letters, China and Russia. You then have organizations like Russia Today, and then some left-wing academics who are, according to this map, supposed to be linked to Russia and China. And we can now zoom to the top right. Remember, this was described as a map of, quote, British left Putin influencers. The key node in this map here is Jeremy Corbyn. You can also see Jess Barnard, chair of Young Labour, MPs like Zara Sultana and Richard Bergen, and media outlets, including Tribune magazine. And you might notice in that top right-hand corner, Navarra Media. According to this leaked influence map, which the Grey Zone ascribed to Paul Mason, it appears we are exerting pro-Putin influence on the, quote, young network left and on the black community. Aaron, we're in reasonably good company here, but what do you make of Paul Mason placing us within the pro-Putin infosphere? Well, this, this image was in circulation for a few days before the article was published, and I, I was certain it was real because, I mean, we talked about this privately, I was certain it was real because only Paul Mason would contrive an image which would include Socialist Appeal, Navarra Media, Conta, which is a, a Scottish school, small Scottish media outlet, Progressive uh, International, China, Zara Sultana. Only he thinks like this. And, you know, there was that connection that we had, which was to the network left and to the black community. That tells me two things. Firstly, the person that created it, I, I think, is a racist. I think it's very strange to look at millions of people in this country who are black or Muslim in this bizarre sort of totalizing, generalizing way. That's one thing. And then it's just bizarre. Like Navarra Media, we don't have any to our, you know, to our detriment. We have Moya, who's mixed race, who's a presenter. We've got Dali, who's Egyptian. Ash is South Asian. Okay. I, I'm half Iranian. 
we had a, a camera guy, uh, Ghanaian Heritage, who's worked for us a while back, but we're not, we're intersectional, but we're not like a black media, we're not politically black or a black media organization. So I think that tells you something quite concerning about Paul Mason is that even if you're acknowledging intersection analysis or you're interested in the global south, that means you're reaching out to the Britain black community. I mean, it's just, it's actually deeply politically dis- disrespectful to black people, to Muslims, that they would be somehow misled by a, a media outlet like Navarra Media. Like they must be so, they're political sheep. You know, where are the white people? Where's the white community, Paul? You know, it's very, very strange to me. So a racist and B highly plausible simply by virtue of how esoteric some of the references were. But really, really sad. I mean, we could talk about this for far longer. I've known Paul now for 12 years. He was always a, a strange guy, idiosyncratic, but often interesting people are. But in, in the last several years, he really, really has gone on off the rails. And I think it's important to remember this for our, our audience. The guy's a former Trotskyist. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a former Trotskyist. But I think you do get these people in life who need a cause. You know, at one point in his life, when he was a younger guy, his cause was global revolution as a Trotskyist. And I think in more recent years, his cause is clearly counter disinformation. I don't know, attack the left. I feel like that's partly the explanation. These people, they need a cause. They need to feel that there's a force driving history. They're a part of it. And for a long time, that was probably, yeah, you know, the, the communist slash socialist movement. And now it's something else, something I think, I think deeply inexplicable, certainly not progressive. And fundamentally, what he's doing undermines a free society. It's incredibly dangerous. And a lot of the stuff that he's been saying about other people, that they're Stalinists, Paul Mason, you are the Stalinist. He likes to talk about networks versus hierarchies. You are the networked Laurenti Beria going around making lists of people who shouldn't be allowed to communicate what they think and, and how they view things and understand them. You are an enemy of a free society. And I don't like to use that language. I don't like to talk about people being enemies of a free society. But if you're making blacklists of people and trying to consciously foreclose the public agora in terms of debate around foreign policy, which is what a healthy society needs to do, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the last 20 years, like in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, that necessitates a healthy public discussion around foreign policy. You're trying to foreclose that. That makes those things more likely to be repeated in the future. And you're an enemy of liberty. Uh, like I said, I don't like that kind of rhetoric, but that's exactly what he's doing. Let's look at some more of what has been leaked or what has been purported to be the case in, in the grey zone. Because it seems that one reason Mason's apparent obsessions might seem particularly concerning is that the emails also suggest he has a desire to work with the security services. For example, Mason and Khan invited people from the UK Government National Security Council to a secret summit on deplatforming the grey zone. The invitation was declined. In another email, Mason said of their proposed project, what it really also needs is Intel service input by proxy. For example, Bellingcat. Now, Mason's apparent suggestion that Bellingcat receives input from Western intelligence services is itself controversial. We'll return to that a little bit later. For now, though, it's worth noting that it doesn't seem as if Britain's intelligence services are as interested as in, in Mason as he seems to be with them. Mason, however, may have had more luck with the BBC. Last week, he appeared on a Radio 4 documentary called Ukraine, the Disinformation War. As we say in journalism, if one guy says it's raining outside and another doesn't, your job as a journalist is to step out and look up into the sky and find out what's happened. Paul Mason was for many years a colleague of mine here at the BBC, 
Although he's still a journalist, he's also become a left-wing campaigner, and he joined Jeremy Corbyn's second leadership campaign. But he became disillusioned with that faction of the Labour Party. These days, he's busy writing books and fighting disinformation. And a few months ago, he was in Ukraine speaking to local activists. He believes if someone's knowingly sharing Russian disinformation, they're acting as proxies for Putin. We have to be prepared to to label what is happening to a small number, and it is a tiny number, but an influential number. They're actively promoting the talking points and disinformation of the Kremlin. I think that is objectively being pro-Putin. They can sit there all they like and say, oh, I condemn the invasion. But the tell is they're not interested in the invasion. And they never talk about the specific battles, the atrocities. They're interested in the concept of Ukraine being a puppet of an, an American encirclement of Russia. And so in the world of information, the first question we should always ask is cui bono? Who benefits if my friends in Kiev, who are you know, ex-students, no in uniform, suddenly run out of bullets? What will happen to them? They will surrender. And if they're unlucky, they'll be shot. That cui bono, who benefits from stopping the arms to Ukraine, is Vladimir Putin. Again, that might all sound reasonable on the face of it. It's not a completely bizarre thing to say. But I have personal experience of how widely Mason casts that pro-Putin net. On a recent show on Owen Jones's channel, I challenged Paul on his support for the Labour leadership's demand that left-wing MPs either retract their names from an anti-NATO letter or face expulsion. Saying that NATO potentially provoked Russia's invasion. No, no, they didn't say potentially. They said NATO okay. was responsible. So say, okay, let's let's start. So saying NATO provoked the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Which I think there's some truth to. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't. I don't think that letter was particularly well drafted. But signing it is not a red line for me. Um, and if it were, I think I'd find it very difficult to justify it being a red line for me, and it not be a red line for me that Keir Starmer not said. I, I, I believe there should be a state of Israel. He has said that these three of the leading human rights organizations in the world have come out. One of them is Israeli and have said mm. that Israel is an apartheid state because it does these different things. He said, yeah. no, I don't agree with that. No, I think boycott, divest and sanctions would be terrible. And that, while I, I, I accept you disagree with him there, you disagree with him on that, but you think that's perfectly reasonable and he should be Labour, leader of the Labour Party. Mm. A backbencher signs something about NATO that you disagree with and you think that they should be expelled. And what I find interesting is that the only explanation I can find for drawing that line, but not that line, is that one of them is is seen as acceptable by, by the political establishment, by Keir Starmer and mainstream is, press. No, you see, this is, the, this is the Putin talking point, isn't it? Supporting Ukraine is racist. You know, everybody who, everybody who supports Ukraine is really doing it because they this don't support Yemen, because they <laughs> Paul, don't support Palestine. No, this Paul, is not, this I, is not that's remotely that's what I've said Paul, in any way whatsoever. Paul, understand, Paul, my, that is the logic that behind the, the point you're making. Now, you saw that with your own eyes. I thought I was, you know, referring to an obvious inconsistency there. Paul Mason disagrees with the Labour left on NATO. Fair enough. And he says he disagrees with Keir Starmer on Israel. Fair enough. But... He says only the anti-NATO faction should be expelled. And apparently, that means I'm spouting a pro-Putin talking point, and I think anyone that supports Ukraine is racist. Like, I don't know where that came from. Let's fast forward to the next part of that interview. Do you think that all Labour figures who support arming Saudi Arabia, who are on record supporting arming, arming Saudi Arabia as it carpet bombs Yemen, 
I'm including people who've supported selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, like Luke Akers, who sits on the National Executive Committee. And I also mean dozens, and we're talking dozens of Labour MPs who voted in 2016. They defied the whip when Jeremy Corbyn put down a motion, or they can't remember, the motion was on arming Saudi Arabia. Do you think they should be kicked out of the Labour Party? If you support no, the... What? Not. What? Oh, okay. okay. You when then is the biggest no, humanitarian no, crisis on earth? You do then, Owen. Are you saying Luke Akers should be kicked out of the Labour Party? No, I, no, I'm not. You're the one who's saying people should be kicked yeah, out of the Labour Party. So the I'm making a difference. So I, yeah, please, What's the difference? We're, we're, we're Yemen's the worst humanitarian we're, crisis on earth. They, well, they are murdering children in buses with bombs from Britain. Some understanding here. There are many differences that are containable within the Labour Party. But for me, the difference that says NATO is the aggressor in, uh, in the right. Ukraine crisis is not containable. Because Paul, Russia Paul. is waging a genocidal war. Right. Okay. Why? So that's, yeah, that's my yeah. politics. That's my opinion. Why is the life of a Yemeni so much lower uh, than that of a Ukrainian? Go, go again. So, Owen, this is the Putin talking point. No, so what? Putin, how, dare is how dare you? Putin, Ukraine is racist. Uh, no, because anyone who supports Ukraine I, is okay. raising Ukraine above brown people. That's the Putin talking point. And I won't I now remember, me and Owen both said we supported the Ukrainian resistance against Russia. If you watch this show regularly, you'll know that's the case. We've also both said the West should arm Ukraine. I think there are reasonable disagreements about what weapons should be sent there, the various risks that sort of different outcomes might pose. But, you know, in general, they definitely have the right to resist. But the mere request for some consistency from Paul Mason meant we were on the side of Putin. And Aaron, like, we know that Paul Mason now seems to think it's his mission to out those people who he thinks are on the side of Putin and to potentially, you know, be sending emails inviting people from National Security Council um, to meetings about this kind of stuff. I know that was specifically about the grey zone, but it does seem like he's casting this net very, very widely, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's not just media outlets, Michael. It's also, it's, it's elected politicians and people who hold public office. Jess Barnard, she's been elected leader of Young Labour. Jeremy Corbyn, Zara Sultana, Diane Abbott. Um, these are elected politicians who are being undermined by somebody acting through uh, secret back channels. It's very, 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 very concerning. And I think for me, Michael, to return to that point of what you're saying, I view personally uh, Vladimir Putin as a huge geopolitical threat. I buy the argument, which I didn't maybe six months ago, actually, that Russian ultranationalism is a huge problem and a concern, particularly for Europe, because we're neighboring Russia ultimately. It's less so for, for the United States, although, of course, it does impinge its interests abroad. I think it's a major concern over the next couple of decades. You know, he's talking about Peter the Great and the Great Northern War with Sweden and how, you know, how uh, that's a, a template to follow. Well, the Great Northern War saw Russia go into what we today view as, you know, the Baltic states. Those are sovereign states. They're members of the European Union. They don't, they don't want to be part of Russia. So I, I agree that he's a great geopolitical threat. Where I think Paul is deeply damaging, in fact, is that what we need, precisely because Putin is dangerous, is an informed, open debate about how best to address and deal with him. And I think people like Paul foreclosing that debate, saying to absolutely everybody, if you disagree with me, that's a Putin talking point. Well, how, how do we measure that? How does that lend itself to, to, to informed public debate? How does it? I mean, it's the opposite of that. And like I say, precisely because we didn't have informed public debate at the start of the 21st century on Iraq, on Afghanistan, big historic mistakes were made. We can't afford to do that again. 
So actually, Paul Mason is critically undermining the thing he claims to be defending, not only regards to democracy, because I view people that behave like this as enemies of democracy and liberty, but actually purely in an instrumental sense in dealing with Putin, I think he makes the job harder, not easier. That to me is, is something that I really have to, um, I really have to press home. Finally, he looks at civil society, like the conversations we're having now, Michael, he looks at everything as an information war. That is the opposite of democratic deliberation. When there's a democratic society, Paul, and you have to deliberate, one person says something they think, another person says another, you both respect one another's viewpoints, and perhaps you both can learn, and who knows, maybe you proceed forward taking elements of both arguments. That's how democratic deliberation and debate functions. Paul Mason's view of society now on a bunch of issues is about information war. What I'm saying is correct, subjective truth. By the way, this is the Trotskyist fanatic coming out, right? Not the liberal. This is anti-liberal what he's doing. What I'm saying is correct. What you're saying is wrong. You have to be ground into the dust because it's information war. I have to be the victor. You have to lose. And if that doesn't happen, then in some huge Manichaean battle of good and evil, evil wins out because I haven't been able to win this particular adversarial rhetorical debate. Clearly, it is a ridiculous way for a man in his early 60s to be carrying on. But also, like I say, viewing society as a plane of information war, which, by the way, there's a lot of people in these circles that think like that. But the fact that Paul's been caught out, I think, is very revealing. Firstly, it's an absurd worldview. Secondly, this man's an enemy, not just to the left, but of anybody who believes in a democratic society. I think that point about seeing everything as an information war is super important. And it actually brings out from that BBC documentary that we, we played you a clip of. What I think is kind of most telling in, in that it sounds anodyne, but it actually has some really sinister implications because he says, the issue here is cui bono, who benefits? When anyone says anything, you've got to see who benefits. And if you can construe an idea where you know Putin benefits, then that's a Putin talking point. Now, what that reminds me of is the run up to the Iraq war. Like it, when people are saying, you know, Saddam Hussein probably doesn't have weapons of mass destruction, when they're saying we probably shouldn't fight this illegal war, then you could, you know, people were saying, well, that makes them proxies of Saddam Hussein. That makes them apologists of Saddam Hussein. Why? Because Saddam Hussein benefits from those statements. And it's true, he does benefit from that. You know, Saddam Hussein probably was hoping that the anti-war movement in the West would be successful. Now, does that mean that the anti-war movement in the West was a proxy for Saddam Hussein? No. <laughs> Right? Because they, they oppose the war for completely different reasons, right? So if you say, as soon as anything that you say could possibly be used by Putin, it becomes, you know, the wrong side in an information war, then that completely takes away any ability to have any rational conversation about anything. And it will lead to terrible, terrible, terrible foreign policy decisions. Like it's, it sounds anodyne. We've got to look at who benefits. But that question is just so deeply sinister. Finally, let's look at Paul Mason's response. So on the day the Grey Zone published that piece, he posted this. Last week, an attempt was made to hack my encrypted and secure email account. The circumstances of the attack suggested it is highly likely that a Russian state or state-backed unit carried out the attack. I have informed the police and the NCSC. That's a, a British intelligence organization. Today, materials purporting to be emails and other content from me were published by the Grey Zone, a US blog. In the process, Grey Zone may have risked exposure of my confidential journalistic sources. He goes on, I make no comment on such material, which may be altered or faked. 
Gray Zone's publication has the effect of assisting a Russian state-backed hack and leak disinformation campaign. That's the Kui Bono thing again. My determination to expose and counter Russian disinformation campaigns and attacks on our democracy is well known. I will not be deterred from this. I urge my colleagues in the labor and trade union movement to remain vigilant against the information war being waged upon us. Since then, he has tweeted this. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped me understand the Russian hack and leak attack on me, including Elliot Higgins of Bellingcat, who are, of course, a 100% independent investigations group and a vital ally in the struggle against disinformation from all states. Now, this appears to be a retraction of his suggestion in those um, leaked emails that Bellingcat receives intelligence from Western intelligence services. That's something that Bellingcat has long denied. Um, not everyone from Bellingcat appears to be in the mood to mend bridges with Paul Mason after this controversy. Nick Waters works on digital investigations for Bellingcat and he tweeted, God save us from the counter disinfo Walter Mitty idiots who have no idea how the information space actually works and try and cover up their lack of understanding with moronic charts and references to the <laughs> Intel services. And then someone else said, ooh, can we name and shame? And then Nick Quarter says, that idiot who got hacked because he didn't have two-factor authentication on his proton mail. So two-factor authentication for anyone. I only know this because at Navarro, they make us do two-factor authentication on like their Twitter accounts, which I find frustrating. You have to wait to get a text message, which gives you the password before you could log on. Presumably, actually, very useful. I never claim to be uh, an, an expert when it comes to infosec, but Paul Mason does seem to be posing as one. And Nick Waters, who does actually um, work in that sphere, doesn't seem to be very impressed. Next story: Wes Streeting was one of the loudest voices campaigning against the Labour Party between 2015 and 2019. He was the MP who even said during an election campaign that he didn't think Jeremy Corbyn should be Prime Minister which meant any Labour members watching Question Time this week were in for a shock. Asked whether Labour backed an upcoming railway strike by the RMT, Streeting said this. Well, I wish they weren't going ahead, and so does the RMT. I listened to their General Secretary, Mick Lynch, on LBC just the other week, saying that he doesn't want his members out on strike. I think people don't realise that when workers go on strike, they lose a day's pay. And I don't think anyone wants to be losing a day's pay against the current backdrop. But do you support... Well, why, the question well, is, do you support the Why strikes? are they going on strike? To defend their pay, jobs, terms and conditions. That is what any of us would be doing for our own jobs, pay, terms and conditions in the current climate. What needs to be done to avoid these strikes going ahead? The government needs to do what the government should be doing, which is providing a table for people to get around to try and negotiate a fair settlement for the workers that keeps the trains running and treats people fairly. Instead, what they're trying to do is pour petrol on the fire, pick a fight with the railway unions, because they hope that starting a fire on railways will distract from Boris Johnson's problems. That's not responsible government. And when you've got the rail operators saying, oh, we want to negotiate, you've got the RMT saying we don't want to go on strike. It's the responsibility of government to get people around the table. And I'll tell you what might fix our broken railways. Instead of people paying high fares in this country that subsidise fares in France, in Germany, in Holland, because they own our railways and we don't, why don't we for, for finally get a grip on our own railways, put them back in public ownership so that we can reinvest the profits in better services and lower fares for people in Britain? You've not actually answered the question. Do you support the upcoming transport strikes, yes or no? 
Well, I, as I say, I prefer they weren't. You wish they weren't happening, but do you support? No, but genuinely, if I were, if look, put it this way, if I remember, so you, if I remember the RMT and my jobs were at risk like this, then I would be I'd be voting to go on strike and I'd be voting to defend my jobs, terms and conditions. If I were a government minister right now, it's not my job to be on the picket line, or it's not my job to be condemning unions. It's my job to solve the problem, to get people okay. around the table, to Sarah, make sure passengers aren't inconvenient. Now I watched that. I have to say, I watched it on on Twitter because I don't. I struggled to watch a whole episode of Question Time. But I was like, wow, you know, for a moment, like, whoa, mystering sounds pretty, like, good. You know, it's, it's very well put, very right on. He's saying, I, I think the bravest thing he said there was, you know, if if I was in the RMT, I would have voted to strike, like, strong. You know, this is very far away from, you know, Ed Miliband saying the strikes are wrong and people need to come to to, to the table. He, he was explaining there very coherently why trade unions are important. Then I remember that this is not Wes Streeting having a conversion to being a leftist. Well, it's probably not. No, I can't read his mind. This is probably, I imagine, Wes Streeting building up to his long-awaited, long-trailed leadership campaign to become Labour leader. Now, we know when it came to Keir Starmer, he was you know, very rightly, correctly informed that if he wanted to become Labour leader, he would have to say that he was very left-wing. He gave us 10 pledges, which looked pretty left-wing, said very left-wing things, had that video at the beginning of the campaign. Do you remember? I support protests. I support the miners. Um, I've taken the cops to, to court. Once he's Labour leader, anything the cops say is, is correct. Protest movements and direct action you know, needs to be stopped. Complete about turn. I wouldn't be surprised if Wes Streeting is doing the same. And it is... Um, worth saying. I mean, it should go without saying. Wes Streeting is not left-wing. As NUS president, his main innovation was to drop the union support for free education. He told the Independent, moving to the right on tuition fees makes sense. After the NUS, Streeting went on to work for Progress. That's the Blairite think tank on the Labour right. After that, he worked at Stonewall, the LGBT charity, fairly neutral thing to do. And and that was um, before heading to PricewaterhouseCooper to work as a private consultant to public sector organisations. Now, in, in 2015, he was elected to Parliament, where he became one of the most vocal opponents of Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party on the Labour benches. And that most often involved the anti-Semitism row and a so-called people's vote. But he also memorably waded in when Labour banned McDonald's from having a stand at their 2016 conference. So at the time, Streeting told The Sun on Sunday, The band smacks of a snobby attitude towards fast food restaurants and people who work or eat at them. McDonald's may not be the trendy falafel bar that some people in politics like to hang out at, but it's enjoyed by families across the country. Now, it turned out the band had nothing to do with vegetarianism and was rather because McDonald's weren't recognizing their employees' trade union. Still, a good opportunity to give the Murdoch-owned press an anti-Corbyn quote. Finally, in May this year, Wes became the first member of Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet to tour Israel. He did so with Labour Friends of Israel. All in all, one might think it would be harder for Streeting then to put together a soft focus campaign video pretending he's left wing than it was for Keir Starmer. But, and this is important, it is an open question as to how much that will matter this time around. With so many left wingers leaving the party in the last two years, the selectorate is much more open to centrism than it was in 2019, well, it seems to be. So, for example, a YouGov poll in 2020 found that 29% of Labour members were willing to see moderate compromises on Labour values to get elected. That's now gone up to 42%. And those willing to see large compromises have gone up from 12 
to 15%. Aaron, I want your take on Wes Streeting's intervention. Is he pitching left to try and win the leadership election? And given the left's exodus from the <clears throat> Labour Party, maybe might he not even need to? I think the membership is still quite left-wing, Michael, on, on, on policies. You know, I think the, the membership still likes what Keir Starmer was offering in early 2020. I think that's probably still the, the sort of the, the centre ground of the party. Of course, the, the people that turn out, the people that get voted onto executives, the people who aren't, you know, mothballed and can run for council positions and become parliamentary candidates and so on, they're rigging all of that. We saw about that in Stroud. Of course, we've seen it in Wakefield. We saw it in the West of England mayoral selection last year. But the, the membership, I think, is still is still is still to the left of Keir Starmer. In fact, I mean, they still, for instance, the membership still has a pretty good, um, pretty good sort of sentiment towards Jeremy Corbyn. The membership thinks that he should be allowed back in the party, for instance. So I, I wouldn't buy the argument that somehow they're going to like West Streeting. I think they want to eliminate homelessness, address the housing crisis, they support public ownership and so on. What I find out and about when I talk to people, I met a lovely woman in, um, in Hay-on-Wai last weekend. She was supporting Starmer because she said, well, that's what you have to do to get in power and then you'll change things. And of course, I didn't say this to her, but I thought, you're delusional, okay? To an extent, yes. And I thought that's what Keir Starmer was doing in his 2020 pitch. I think actually the man he ran as, the candidate he ran as, would actually be quite popular, would probably get elected with a majority, I think. But as we saw with focus groups, which came out earlier this week, he's instead seen as very evasive, not standing for anything slippery. And I think Streeting's probably looking at that. And there's a twofold logic here. Firstly, he's trying to appeal to the membership, but also, Michael, I think he's trying to appeal to the public. The, the Labour right, people around Mandelson, aren't completely stupid. You know, they know that there is a zeitgeist which has shifted around public ownership. Now, they're not going to support public ownership. But, you know, I can see them fixating on one thing, trains, and that's it. And everything else. And you do that to sort of, to buy a certain credibility around economic populism, which, by the way, voters on both the left and the right support. Leveling up was the appropriation of Corbynism on regional equality by the Conservatives. And so I think there, there is an element, yes, of trying to appeal to the Labour membership. But I also think to the public at large, Michael, they look at the polling, they know, they know how popular this stuff is. And it was remarkable to me to see West Streeting use the language of economic populism. I thought it was crazy. He was talking about, you know, uh, foreign-owned companies benefiting from us paying high fares while we have a crap service, which is overpriced. This was stuff that was verboten on British media five years ago. People like you or me might have been saying it on Sky or the BBC, but not many others. And I think to an extent the Labour right now acknowledges that is the terrain of politics. If they want to win, they'll at least have to acknowledge that. Now, like you say, if he does become the Labour leader, perfectly possible, I think he probably would be the favourite. He would be the most right-wing person to ever become leader of the Labour Party. And I would implore members to look at his record uh, and to not make the same mistakes they did with Keir Starmer. Let's go to our final story. The RMT have announced nationwide railway strikes later this month, with over 50,000 workers set to walk out over stagnating pay and job cuts. Earlier this week, we reported on how much the mainstream media hates the idea of workers going on strike. Instead of dealing with the issues of pay freezes and job insecurity, they prefer to only focus on passengers' inconvenience. It's almost like they're trying to build opposition to it. But despite their best efforts, a recent YouGov poll shows that 45% of people under the age of 50 support the strikes, with only a third against them. We love to see it. Another thing we love to see is our own Ash Sarkar schooling the media classes on the importance of unions and strike action. 
Ash, there'll be a lot of people waking up this morning who will be saying we have this horrific cost of living squeeze. Fuel costs have gone up dramatically. Uh, even yesterday, they've gone up the most they have in 17 years. Uh, energy prices are soaring. The last thing we need is the threat of rail action, which means on those three days when I have to go to work, I can't use my car because it's too expensive. I've got to go on the train and now I can't do that either. Uh, I'd actually flip it the other way around, okay. all right? In a context where the cost of living crisis is being paid for by ordinary workers, the thing that you need are strong unions and the ability to collectively bargain for better pay and conditions. Now, why the RMT are striking, which is I noticed not something people have talked about, is that workers who had been keeping the railways running during the pandemic are being threatened with job cuts and a pay freeze, which mean, would mean that their pay isn't keeping up with inflation. And so that's why the union is doing their job and saying, we will use our strength, which is the fact that you can't run this without us, to protect and defend our workers' conditions. That is the job of a trade union. Mm -hmm. And if it's so important to keep the railway running, because I agree, these workers are totally essential, then the bosses should be coming up with a reasonable package that the workers can accept. If this is so important that it causes so much disruption, why not meet the unions and compromise and value their position? Well, I don't believe you can have it both ways. I don't believe that you can say we must give in to the demands because these workers are essential. Oh, but they're not essential enough that we say that strikes among those workers shouldn't be allowed anymore, which is what I believe. Now, this industry, if we're talking about people who are having to pay their taxes uh, to bear this cost of living crisis, this industry will receive £16 billion in subsidies this year alone. This industry received billions of pounds in subsidies, meaning that not one rail worker worked without full pay during the whole of COVID. They're not asking for just the same paying conditions. They want an 11% pay rise. Because that is, that is the job of a trade union. And here's the thing, why, why I think it's so dangerous for you to talk about making strike action illegal. Every single person in this country has benefited from rights which have been secured by trade unions and the right to strike, including minimum wage, maternity pay, sick pay. These are all things which before they were made law, were won by trade unions and they benefited everybody. Because you're, you're essentially selling a myth to, to the people of this country. You're saying, well, if you ask nicely, if you play nicely, if you're a good little boy or girl, maybe the bosses will take pity on you. That's not how it works. Workers have one form of power and that is collective bargaining. And every right we have as workers in this country has been secured by playing hardball. And that was brilliant. Also very refreshing. Like how... Often do we actually hear people on, on the television talk about the logic of why those workers are striking? Yeah, they'll often say in passing, oh, what they want is better paying conditions. But they don't explain, you know, from first principles, what is the point of a strike? What is a strike? Why are they doing it? Instead, what you get is lots of vox pops of people who might have their journey disrupted. Now, I'm not saying, you know, people's journey being disrupted is, is significant. And the trade unions also take that into account, right? They don't enjoy disrupting people's days. But they're using the leverage they have, which Ash put so, so brilliantly. Because Ash can explain this all better than me, let's watch some more um, of that exchange. The threat the bosses have is firing. The threat the worker has is, I won't come to work. It feels like the bottom line is that's where you are. There are many, many industries and there are many, many low-paid workers that many of these unions claim that they want to represent that don't have the power to strike, that still 
turn up for work that still negotiate with their bosses <laughs> so, in a so, way. So, hang on, hang on. So you said there are many low-paid workers who don't go on strike. I wonder what the relationship is there. One of the reasons why, particularly on the London Underground, you've got some of the best-paying conditions in the public sector is because the RMT are not who you F with. They go on strike. They walk out. They collectively organise. And, they, and that's and they why make they've got good-paying conditions. And then you're saying to people, well, you know, be... Be a nice little worker, accept your low pay and doff your cap and don't go on strike. No, no be good I at your job this, and go and see no, your boss I, and, and I ask for a pay rise. I think people in this country deserve better. I think they deserve good pay, good conditions. The problem is we are all facing a mm. huge squeeze financially. This is going to impact on all those essential workers that have to use the round network to go and do their jobs. They don't have a choice. And right now is not the time to do this. And as you said just then, they have good pay, they have good standards, they have good various issues that, that you know, they have... They have organised themselves in the past, the RMT, so they actually are well looked after. It's a very strong trade union, clearly. But why pick now? Why pick because, now? Because if you, if, you if, you take your, if you take your foot off the gas, then suddenly all the backsliding on the pensions and the job cuts and the pay provision. I completely empathise with the issue of it being disruptive. I don't drive, right? Public transport is my only way to get around. And that for me, indicates why it's so important for bosses to come with a serious package mm. to the RMT on pension protection and on protecting Where their workers the from, from job costs. Um, Where does the money so, come from? So, we, the taxpayer, are subsidising these industries to the and, tune and of billions said, already. So now, the, the, so people who you and, claim and, and, to worry about will end up paying in their taxes for those pensions. You know who's not taking, you know, huge pay cuts. You know whose jobs are being protected? It's CEOs, it's corporations. We're looking at, I think, having a cost of living crisis where instead of profits being uh, taxed in order to protect ordinary workers, it's the other way around, right? Ordinary workers are bailing out corporations and the RMT and other trade unions are saying, we are not having So they it. strike in good times, they strike in bad times, they just strike all the time, And basically. that's how you get things like pension provision and paternity No, that's how pay. you get legislation that will stop striking. Now, Ash, I mean, I'm sure you think she was effective there, but so did the GMB audience. Um, so you saw the guy she was debating with, Christo, a guy from Talk Radio, sort of saying, this strike is going to prompt legislation to you know, ban these strikers. And after watching that debate, GMB viewers seem to have agreed with Ash. So should the law be changed to stop transport workers striking? Yes, 31%. No, 69%. You watch the opening sort of gambit from the presenter. And of course, we're, in, we're on the left. You know, we're very familiar with trade unions. We know that trade unions are necessary to push up people's wages. And he's saying, well, look, there's a cost of living crisis. They shouldn't strike. Well, no, they should strike. It was very, it's a sort of surreal thing, but of course, you know, we have to accept that that's a relatively widespread way of thinking. You know, what, one thing I would add to what Ash said was when that gentleman, Christo, when he said, how are we going to pay for it? Well, we've got 9% inflation. We pay VAT. That means the exchequer is bringing in more tax revenue through VAT because, of course, the price of goods and services are going up. Tens of billions that's raising, by the way. There are some upsides to inflation, not many. We can use that. There you go. And it's so strange to me that these workers aren't even asking for particularly much. You know, they're asking for their pay, 11% pay rise. Right now, inflation's 9%. It's probably going to go higher than that this year. My goodness, it could go to 12%, 13%, 15% this year. It could. Um, and that's before interest rate rises for people who own properties. By the way, those are also passed on to renters because the landlords have mortgages. So they're asking basically for the same terms and conditions that they had and pay and living standards that they had last year. That's all they're asking for. 
all they're asking for. And it really does tell you something quite instructive about where Britain is now, where it's somehow radical to ask for the same living standards and pay as a year ago. To stand still. Sorry, I just want to remain in the same set of circumstances I was in 12 months ago. Well, that means you shouldn't be allowed to strike. We're now going to criminalize a basic human right, which has been around for 100 years. And as Ash said, is the basis and foundation of many of uh, many good things that we take for granted, like a eight-hour day or a weekend or pensions. I don't know where this man comes from. You know, if you want to live in a decent society with a weekend, with pensions, with sick pay, with holidays, you need trade unions. Now, if you don't like those things, don't have trade unions. But guess what? Most people do. That's why Ash won the debate and why the polling was in her favour. Very well put. I'm so so lucky to have such articulate colleagues. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Michael, I love our little... Uh, a little Friday get-togethers. Great start to the weekend. I couldn't ask for a better start. Now, if you want to see more of Ash, this Sunday's interview, um, we'll see her speaking to China Mieville about how capitalism affects art. That's on our channel on Sunday at 7pm. And when this stream ends, you'll be taken over to that page. We at Tisky Sour, of course, will be back on Monday. Have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.